So if you haven't been here for a while, or if you're just checking us out for the first time, uh, we've been in a series in John. Uh, We're not actually going through the entire book of John, but we've been focusing on the I am statements that Jesus proclaims in the book of John. Um, John is really unique because this book shows a, a very unique portrait of who Jesus is, right? So the question is, who is Jesus And Jesus responds in many different ways, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And lastly, we're going to be talking about the statement where he says, I am the true vine. Uh, John's gospel, if you look at it, it's very, very simple, Uh, What I mean by that is, linguistically, you look at the language and the vocabulary, the wording that he uses, and it's really, really, like, simple. Um, It's not, like, complex, uh, like Luke, right? But in John, even though he uses very, very simple phrases and words, um, there's so much depth and and meaning um, that he really puts into these words. Uh, John loves to use metaphors and illustrations. And um, really, with just this passage, John 15, that we're going through today, uh, we could spend an an entire series just mining the depths of this passage. Um, Obviously, I don't have the luxury to do that, so I will try my best to kind of show us and to close out this series and do my best to define what it means when Jesus says, I am the true vine. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we're going to be reading the first 17 verses. So here it is, if you don't have your Bibles. Um, This is the reading of God's word. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser or farmer. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandments that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
for all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. And he finishes off like this. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, right? I just read like a huge chunk of scripture. Um, so what's going on here, right? What, what is Jesus saying? Um, here's the context. In less than 24 hours, Jesus is about to get arrested, right? Um, so he's having his last supper. He's spending his last moments with his disciples, right, his inner circle. And the last thing he wants to do before he completes his mission as a son of God to die on the cross for man's sin, the last thing he wants to do is to provide a series of teachings, right? So Jesus' interest here is to teach his disciples, to equip them so that they can apply what to do when Jesus is gone, right? This is called the farewell discourses. And what is Jesus saying here? The main thing that Jesus is saying, essentially, if you reduce it down to one phrase, is this, abide in me. Jesus wants all of his disciples to abide in him. Now, what does it mean to abide, right? What does it mean to abide? Um, If you look at the word abide, it can be also translated as remain, right? These two words, abide, remain, means to stay, right? Locationally, means to stay, means to dwell, right? Means to live. So if abiding or remaining means to live, to dwell, to stay somewhere, What does it mean when he says, abide in me, right? The question is where? Where should we abide? Where should we stay? Where should we dwell? And the answer is this. When he says, abide in me, Jesus is saying, live in me. Live in me, right? To to abide in Jesus means to be in the presence of God. Now, what does this mean, right? Jesus is saying, you need a relationship with me. For you to abide in me, you need a relationship with me. Jesus is essentially saying in this passage, right, using this metaphor of the vine and the branches, I am your source for life. I am your source for growth. Right? As the branches need the nutrients that come from the vine, likewise, all of you, right, this entire church, you need me to survive. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? You need me to live. You need me to grow. You need me to bear fruit. Right? And in verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't live. You can't have life. You can't grow. You can't thrive. However, if you abide in Jesus, right? Jesus says, if you abide in me, you have everything. You have everything. In, in me, you have direct access to the Father. Right? The relationship that I have with the Father, guess what? Since you are my disciples, and if you abide in me, you get that same relationship. Right? That same relationship that I have with the Father is given to you, which means you can ask the Father for whatever you want in my name, and guess what? He's going to give it to you. Right? That's what he says in verse 7 and 16. In me, your joy will be full. If you abide in me, you're going to have joy. Right? In me, you are known. You are loved. Right? In me, you can bear fruit. Right? And the purpose of a plant is to bear fruit. Now, what is fruit? What what, what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about fruit? Fruit deals with character, right? 
Jesus is saying, look, I'm the key to that, right? I'm the key to that character change. I'm the key to that growth in your life. And what we see here, Jesus is telling his disciples, fruit is a byproduct of faith, which means this. If you have faith in your lives, right, then you will bear fruit. Fruit proves, as Jesus said in this passage, that we are his disciples, right? And that is why we as a church today, we need a vital connection with Jesus, right? We need an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. We need to draw on his pulsating life as a plant draws from the vine. Because if we don't abide in him, what happens to us? We die, right? Just like the plant that doesn't draw nutrients from the vine, we get tossed out and burned. Now, what does this mean, right? Obviously, if, if you've been walking with the Lord, if, you, if you're a Christian, you know that it's primary to have a relationship with Jesus. But what does this mean? This means that our greatest need is not a circumstance change in life. Right? Our greatest need isn't to get through that master's program, right? So that you can follow with your peers, right, and get that job. That's not your greatest need. Right? Your greatest need isn't to get engaged, right? Your greatest need isn't to throw that best wedding possible, right? To get the best vendors, right? To have someone of Jerome's caliber to shoot your wedding, right? That's not your greatest need. Your greatest need isn't to have healthy kids or to have a healthy family. Because all of those things are secondary. Our greatest need in life, whether if you believe it or not, is for us to abide in Jesus. So the question that I want to ask you, Exchange Church, is this. Are you abiding in Christ? Do you have a living relationship with Jesus, the true vine? Now, we have two points for today. Abiding in Christ teaches us these two things. Here's number one. In our relationship with God, we can be externally connected, but internally disconnected. I'm going to say that again. In our relationship with God, right, we can have this appearance of being externally connected, but when you examine inside, we can be internally disconnected. Let me explain. Did you know that it's possible to look Christian, right, to act Christian, talk Christian, and to even believe that you are Christian without having a relationship with God? It's a possibility. Did you know that you can attend church every Sunday, right? You can be a member. You can serve on a ministry. You can attend life groups every week. You can be a church leader. You can even be a pastor, but still not have a relationship with God. This is a possibility. This passage here is a strong warning for all of us. Because what Jesus is saying is that it's possible to be a dead branch even though we look like we're externally connected to the vine. Now, um, to give us a better understanding of what it means to be externally connected but internally disconnected, um, I want to read some lyrics to you. Okay, It's a famous song. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you guys that. But I want to read this. Um, I think you'll pick up on what this is. Talk to me. Tell me your name. You blow me off like it's all the same. You lit a fuse and now I'm ticking away like a bomb. Yeah, baby. Does it sound familiar? 
I'll read on. Talk to me. Tell me your sign. You're switching sides like a Gemini, right? You're playing games, and now you're hitting my heart like a drum. Yeah, baby. Not in baby. It's like baby, right? Um, who is the first person you think of when you hear the song? Obviously, if it's Ricky Martin, you're wrong, because the first person you think of is William Hung, right? He's an absolute legend, right? If, if you don't know who William Hung is, um, he's one of the most popular contestants from the show American Idol, right? American Idol is like a long-running uh, TV show. So what made William Hung so, so popular? <laughs> what led him to launch his career in music? Because whether if you know it or not, he actually did have a career in music. How was he able to perform on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno? How was he able to give a TED Talk on success? Right, he did. He gave a TED Talk. And it was really good, by the way. You should watch it. The reason why he was so popular, the reason why he had all the success is because of his televised edition on American Idol. Right? Just like every contestant, William Hung was pursuing his dream to be a singer. People audition for American Idol. Why? Because the winner of American Idol gets a contract with a music label. And even if you don't win American Idol, your name is out, right? And just like in the case of William Hung, right, he got picked up by a record label. But in order to win, what do you have to do? Right? What makes you a winner in American Idol? It's the very fact that you killed it in your auditions, right? You impress the judges so you can make it to the next round in Hollywood. But if you've actually seen his audition, uh, we know that William Hung is probably not the best singer, right? Simon Cowell himself said, you're not a great singer, or you're a terrible singer, you're a terrible dancer, what do you want me to say, right? That's literally what he said, right? And William Hung, he said the most heartwarming thing, he was like, I gave it my all, I did my best, and therefore I have no regrets, right? Awesome response. But even though he had such a great heart, even though he had such a demeanor and this personality that won the audience, he was not a good singer, right? Um, but he was extremely entertaining, wasn't he? American Idol is entertaining for two reasons. Number one, contestants are really good. Right? They're really, really good. Um, they sing like the next superstar, and it's very entertaining, Right? Another reason why American Idol is entertaining, is entertaining is because contestants are really bad, right? <laughs> like William Hung. You know what's sad and cringy about American Idol? Right? This is why people watch it. Um, a lot of these contestants actually think that they're amazing, right? They're delusional. When in reality, they're terrible. And what happens, right? They get embarrassed. The judges, they rep them a new one, and they're extremely shocked. They're like, oh, my gosh, I thought I was actually, like, way better than this, right? That's their reaction. The problem that we see here with these contestants that think they're going to kill it in the show when in reality they suck is a problem of lacking self-awareness. One of the worst things that can happen to us as Christians is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we have a solid relationship with Jesus when in reality we are a dying branch. I think this passage is telling us, don't be deceived. Because doing acts of service, right, um, 
doesn't mean that you're abiding. Just because you do this church thing so well doesn't mean that you're at a good place. Let's look at the example of Judas, right? We know who Judas is, right? The, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. When Jesus uh, and his disciples, they were all having that last supper together. Um, when Jesus says that one of you will betray me, did you realize that no one was suspicious of Judas, right? We don't see in the Gospels, oh, like the disciples snickering and saying like, oh, it's that fool Judas. No, but the response of the disciples after Jesus says, one of you will betray me, is, is it I? Oh my gosh, who is it going to be? What does Jesus mean? They're confused. They have no idea that it was Judas, right? Which means this. Let's say, right, the disciples, they were just hanging out. They were in Galilee. It was time to eat fish and bread, right? And Jesus was like, Judas, can you pray for the meal, right? It's not like Judas didn't know how to pray, right? It's not like he was like, uh, Jesus, Father, God, uh, Bless this food. Like, he knew how to pray, right? When the disciples were casting out demons, it's not like he was struggling. In the name of Jesus, get out, right? And all the disciples are like, oh, shoot, what's happening with Judas' demons? Right? They're not being casted out, right? You look through the entire gospel account, and you see that he was casting out demons, just like the rest of the disciples. He was doing good works, right? He was performing miracles, He was ministering to others. He was caring for others. He was behaving like a normal disciple. But here's the thing. Judas appeared as he was externally connected to Jesus, right? One of Jesus' disciples, right? In charge of the money, right? Gifted in administration. But he was not internally connected. If you do not have a deep relationship with Jesus... If you're not engaging in the word, if you're not praying, if you're not in awe of his character, if his glory doesn't amaze you and lead you to worship, you are in grave danger. It is very possible that any of us, including myself, right, can become dead branches. So how do you know if you're abiding? All right, the question is then, how do we know if we're connected and if we're getting our nutrients from Jesus as true vine? Here's our second point. Joyful obedience is a byproduct of abiding. I'll say that one more time. Joyful ob- obedience is a byproduct of abiding. Take this picture off. <laughs> it's distracting. If you are abiding in Jesus that will lead you into joyful obedience. All right, that's what Christianity is. In this passage, Jesus talks about his love for us, right? As the Father has loved me, I have loved you, right? Um, his love for us, he talks about it and he says that my love for you leads to joyful obedience. You see that? Notice Jesus didn't say perfect obedience. He said he's meaning joyful obedience. Now, here's what's so amazing about the gospel. You look at all the other religions in the world, right? Literally all the other religions in the world, they pretty much teach, I obey so that I can be accepted, right? That's the heart of every other religion. For you to reach the pinnacle, for you to be saved, you have to work for it. You have to live your life in obedience. You have to be holy. You have to follow a list of um, different to-do stuff, and you have to just perform, perform, perform. 
But if you look at the gospel, the gospel says this, I am accepted by the God of the universe, therefore I obey. You see that? There's a clear distinction. There's a clear difference. And the type of obedience, right, that God desires is not perfect obedience, right? From the moment of your conversion, right, if you're a Christian, God is not expecting you to be, like, a full representation of Jesus in your actions. No, it takes time, right? The Spirit is going to work in us. And even as we live this life, we are being transformed fully into Jesus, even though we have the status of his righteousness, you see, um, if you look at verse 14 and 15, our relationship with God has changed, right? He says, no longer do I call you servants, but you're my friends. Which means this, the life that we live in abiding in Jesus, we're not doing this um, to earn his favor through our obedience, right? We're not doing this to please our masters. We're not doing this to be accepted. But we see that Jesus calls his disciples friends, and he says this, you are my friends, and I am willing to lay down my life for you. That truth in itself is what leads us to respond to God's love with obedience. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not just moralism. It's obedience that's a response to God's saving love for us. We can't reverse engineer this. What I mean by that is this, obedience will not earn you love. You can obey. Christianity is not a religion where you do all the work that you have to do, right? You do all the rituals, right? You give to the poor, you do all that jazz, and then finally the God of the universe will accept you. No, but rather, you are loved, and therefore you want to live your life in obedience. Obedience will not lead to greater intimacy, right? Your obedience to God will not deepen your intimacy with him. But rather, God, in wanting a relationship with us, has given us intimacy through Christ. Therefore, we obey. You can't obey and live your Christian life without drawing from God's love. Right? This is what the passage is teaching us. So, church, I want to ask you, are you drawing from God's love? Are you drawing from God's love right now? As you work, as you go to school, as you interact with family, as you prepare to, for the next stage in life, whether if it's marriage or kids, whatever, are you drawing from the love of God? Is that the feel that makes you go? Christianity is not a life with a to-do list. It's not contractual like that. Christianity is rather a relationship with God himself. That's what makes us different from all the other religions. Jesus says, I want you more than I want your works. I want to be your reason for doing everything. I want you to give me your whole life so that I can show you what true joy is. That's what Christianity is, right? And obedience, right? Bearing fruit is all a byproduct of being in a relationship with Jesus. So I want to close with these uh, two applications. Okay. Um, here's our first application. Bear the fruit of loving others. Right? In, in light of these truths, right? in light of what we read, God is calling us to bear the fruit of loving others. I want to read this section again. This comes from John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment. Right? Jesus is issuing a command 
to his disciples that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love, and he defines this love, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Do you see that the love that Jesus is talking about is self-sacrificial love? You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You know everything about what, what I'm here to do. You know everything about my mission. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed, that, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And again, he closes it with this. This is his main purpose. Um, this is what he wants all of us as disciples to do in light of abiding in him. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus, in this passage, is clarifying what it means to keep the commandments in verse 10, right? Keeping the commandments means what? It means to love one another. These things I command you so that, purpose, you will love one another. So in other words, the reason why Jesus is teaching this to his disciples right before he's about to get arrested and go to the cross is because he wants to teach them, when I'm gone— When I'm with the Father in heaven, your role as disciples, as followers of me, is to love one another. Loving one another is our proclamation of the gospel to the world. And here's the thing, church. We cannot dare to think to love the world and to be evangelistic if we struggle to love those in our own body. Do you hear what I'm saying? Right, our church, we, we care about missions. We care about the gospel being preached in unreached places. But I think we can't jump steps. In order for us to have that missional heart, we have to practice that love with one another. Are we doing that? Loving others is the life of the church. And the question that I want to ask ourselves is what are we doing to love those in our church? What are you guys doing to love those people, you know, sitting in our, in, on the pews around you? What can we do to specifically love one another sacrificially? Because the love that Jesus is talking about here is not some fake surface-level love, but it's a really deep self-sacrificial love. You know, true love, as I said, is self-sacrificial, right? True love says, your needs come before mine. I think we know this about the gospel, but then again, in, in, in real life, we think this. That's true. I'm not disagreeing with that, but we have our own problems. You know, I need to figure out my stuff first before I can help you, right? But that's why it is self-sacrificial, because we're addressing the problem of others before we address our own problems. That's what it means to love self-sacrificially. And the question that I was thinking about in in just my own life as I was reflecting on this passage was this. Am I conveniently loving people the way that I want to love them? Am I loving the people who are easy to love and comfortable to love? Or rather, am I looking for opportunities to sacrificially love the people at a church? Let me be more specific. Am I looking for opportunities to love those on the fringes 
those on the outside? Am I taking opportunities to um, love those who are struggling to come out to church? How about loving those who are uncomfortable? Am I doing that? How about those who are hard to love? Now, in light of this application, right, bear the fruit of loving others, um, I'll give you a practical application, right? Your choice, your prerogative if you want to do this um, this week. Reach out to someone you don't really talk to at church, right? I know we have our own groups, and which is fine, um, but I want to challenge you guys, you know, reach out to someone you don't really talk to at church. Um, if you're able to, cook for them. Um, if not, um, go out on a meal with them. And if that's too difficult, just grab coffee. <laughs> Spend time with each other. Get to know them. Right? And I think, if I were to just be completely honest, um, as a church, we have more room to grow in these types of interactions at church. As a church, if we want to abide in Christ, if we want to bear fruit, if we want to keep his commandments by loving one another, I s- strongly believe that our call is to love outside of comfort. Who are those people that you can talk to this week? Right? Um, if you want more tips to know how to do this, ask our brother, James Kim. You know why I love James Kim? I'm going to platform him right now. I love, I know, just bear it for like one second, okay? James is awesome because he takes the initiative of reaching and calling different members of the church on a random day, right? I'd be busy, like stressed out doing ministry, and I get a call from James Kim. I'm like, oh, what the heck, what does he want, (laughs) right? And he says, hey, man, I just want to call you and just see how you're doing. Um, How are you, man? I'm just like, dude, I appreciate that. Right, I'm a little caught off guard and just like slightly annoyed because I'm like in the middle of doing something. But I, I genuinely appreciate that, right? And you know what sucks about like what James is doing? People reject him, right? James takes the initiative and saying, hey, um, on this date, let's grab a meal. Let's catch up. But our response is, nah, <laughs> right? But that doesn't stop James. James is persistent. Right, he's going to chop that tree down, and he's going to do his very best to meet up with you, just to hear your story, just to see how you're doing. Church, follow in the example of James Kim. Right, reach out to people this week. Because this is my logic here. How can we be a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus' self-sacrificial love to those who are outside the kingdom if we can't practice it among ourselves? This is the first step for us. Bear the fruit of loving others, especially in our own churches. Here's a second application. Embrace the pruning, right? Uh, in, in this passage, right, Jesus is talking about this plant metaphor, right? Um, in order for a plant or a tree, grapevine, whatever, to be healthy, you have to prune it, right? And... I've heard a pastor say this to me. They say we're either in a season of bearing fruit in our lives or we're in a season of pruning. I look around the room, and I'm sure like 80% of us is in pruning season right now, right? Life is tough, right? Um, The way how like, you know, millennials and college students say it, I'm taking so many L's right now, right? Life is tough. Um, There's so many complex challenges and struggles that I'm going through, Um, It's hard. It's painful. Um, Here's what I want to say about pruning. 
right? And I'm sure a lot of you are in a season of pruning. Um, what I mean by that, a lot of you are probably in a season where God is refining you, right? He is raising the temperature of that fire, and you're just getting burned, right? Here's what I want to say. You will not grow without pruning. You will not grow without pruning. You will not bear fruit without pruning. But if you look at it, right, it really does seem like pruning look, looks like a disaster, if you look at it, if you've seen the action of pruning, it looks like the gardener is having his knife and he's attacking the poor plant, right? It looks like he's trying to kill it. He's chopping it to death. And on the ground, you see beautiful things that should never be on the ground. You see leaves, you see healthy branches, you even see grapes. It looks like the tree is dying. But here's what we need to know about pruning. A skilled gardener never cuts off anything that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. I'll say that one more time. A skilled gardener never cuts off anything that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. This is what we have to understand about pruning. Everything that was taken off of the plant through the action of pruning had to be taken off. Because if that plant wants to reach its fullest potential, you have to get rid of the dead branches. When we look at the hardships of our lives, right, we look at it as a waste. Why am I going through this? This is such a waste. How am I growing in Jesus? How is the suffering um, making me better? And then Jesus says to us, look, you don't understand gardening. You don't understand what I'm doing in your life right now. God brings the knife to every plant to prune it so that it can bear more fruit. And if you are in the season of pruning, right, you are confused with where you're at in life, um, the struggles of life is just hitting you so hard, right? You're losing your passion for Jesus. You're losing your passion for the church. Um, I want to say that pruning is really the evidence that God himself is working in your life right now. Many of you know, um, I am definitely <laughs> in a season of pruning. Um, just to be real, like 2017 sucked. It was terrible. It was one of the worst years of my life. Uh, 2018 is not that much better, to be honest, right? And I really complained a lot about my circumstances, right? In my time of prayer, I would be like, why am I going through this pain? And a lot of it, I'll be honest with you, is just a result of my own actions, Right? And I just have to simply take ownership of that. But a lot of things, like, just happened without, it happened outside of my control. And this is what I learned from my season of pruning. Um, I might not know all the answers on um, how this will make me a better disciple. Um, I know why, because Jesus wants me to bear fruit, right? Um, but just to think about that truth and to believe in that truth is difficult, right? But here's what I learned. Um, when I look at myself now and at the end of 2018 versus myself in the middle of 2017, I realize personally for myself that I have stronger faith. Um, I have a greater pain tolerance. And for me, I might not have all the answers in life and all the solutions to the problems that I'm personally facing, but I feel more secure. I feel a lot more stable. I feel a lot more anchored in life. And if you are in a season of pruning, my encouragement is, you know, God is at work in your life right now. 
Um, it may look like he's killing you. <laughs> it may look like he's like ripping your skin off. But we have to understand that we don't have the eyes that God has. We don't have the perspective that he has. And even in our season of pruning, um, we have each other. We have our life groups. We have this church. So I want to challenge you. Tap into that. Tap into your community here. Be encouraged. I want to finish with uh, this passage here. This is why the word of God is so important. This is why your relationship with Jesus is so important. And I'll read for us. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is not in better circumstances. It's not in marriage, right? It's not in the things that we're dreaming in our own lives. But rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And the writer goes on, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. I want to plead with you. Um, Not only just as a pastor of this church, Um, But I want to plead with you just as a fellow brother. Please do not neglect your personal time with Jesus. Please do not neglect your time in the word. Please, I beg of you, do not neglect your time in prayer. We need a relationship with Jesus. Because that is a foundation for our lives. And if you try to build your life on a weak foundation, your life will crumble. Do you see what this passage is saying? The man or the woman who is extremely blessed, the man or the woman who's satisfied, who has joy, is the one who delights in God's word, his law. And you know how strong you can be if you have this thriving, pulsating relationship with Jesus as you maintain your own worship, um, your life in worship. You become a tree that's planted by streams of water. You yield fruit in, in its season. Your leaves do not wither. Which means in the driest and the coldest winter, right? In the hottest and scorching heat of summer, Whatever season you go through in life, if you are firmly planted and rooted in the word of God, and if you have a thriving relationship, you will not fail. You will not die. You will not wither. Rather, you will thrive. You will live. Because your nutrients do not come from the rain or from the weather, but rather the nutrients that you need to live comes from the river that is, plant- that is right next to you. And you become that tree planted by streams of water. So please, exchange church, prioritize your time with Jesus. Because if we don't do that, we can deceive ourselves. We can be like the William Hungs of Christianity and think that we're good, but in reality, we become dying branches. Let's pray together. Father, I think for myself, I just want to confess that My desire for you is weak. 
Um, my desire for you is highly dependent on circumstances. God, if life is good, it's, um, it's easy to forget you. But if life is terrible, it's so easy to just run back to you and say, I need you. My prayer for myself and this church that you care so deeply about would be that we would be a church that prioritizes the word, that we would be a church that prioritizes our time with you in prayer, that our church would be a church that abides in the true vine, that, God, we wouldn't be dead branches that seem to be externally connected to the vine, but we would be alive branches that are bearing fruit as we are drawing from your life, as we are drawing from your nutrients. We need you, God. We need you to be the center of our lives. We need you to be our sustenance. We need you to be our food. And God, if we do not see that, if that is not a priority, would you wake us up? We need you more than ever. And as a church, we cannot make disciples if we do not abide in you. So Lord Jesus, teach us to be branches that abide in the true vine. Help us, God. Spirit, give us the the power and the energy um, to really apply this powerful truth of you being the true vine this week. And we trust, God, that you will lead us to be a church that loves one another self-sacrificially. That we will be a church that cherishes and treasures you, Jesus. That treasures our relationship with you. And God, that you would use all of that um, to really move us from spiritual milk to solid food and making disciples for your glory. That is our prayer. Help us in our need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.